Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The Movies That Made Me is now a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Josh and I came to it cold, so we you know we didn't have the benefit of seeing any coverage or anything of it. But but I think that the coverage that it's been getting, and it's been getting pretty good coverage, uh, it is a little unfair to the movie because uh, it. I think the movie works better if you don't know that it's based on a real story, and if you and if you don't know the outcome. Uh, and I think a lot of the coverage that I've seen is sort of like, well, I I wouldn't have wanted to know that, yeah. you know, before I saw the picture. Yeah, and I, I totally get that. And then again, what do you do, right? I mean, I, we, I didn't know at least how to how to protect that and just have people going and watch it because it, as soon as you know it's a true story, that is also the horror, the, the, the biggest horror of this, right, is that it actually yeah. happened. That they actually yeah. allowed this to go on. So, um, but yeah, you know, as always, it would be best if people just saw movies, you know, cold and had them there and then they could always review or rewatch. I think the secret is to show the movies to the critics without the last reel. There you go. <laughs> Makes sense. Keep that. I can review that. <laughs> I will say my, my mother-in-law is a nurse and, and um, I'm not joking. It triggered her. I mean, she really, she's retired and she just was, uh, we spent a little time that night with her. I mean, she watched it with us. Uh, telling, telling us stories, my wife and I have um, horror stories from nursing and, bad nurses and the terrible things people can get away with in hospitals. And, oh, maybe there's a sequel there that, you know, yeah, a whole yeah. Genre. <laughs> bring back the nurses movies. I have resolved <laughs> never to go to a hospital ever again for anything. It's, uh, oh, it's, so scary. And it's, you know, it's kind of sad because the, all these wonderful nurses out there, they work so hard and here we are telling horrible stories. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. They're, they're great. It's, it's oh, just a bad apple. That's all. All it takes is one. <laughs> but, but that's uh, enough at least. Yes, but we're, we're, um, uh, oops, you know what? Good Lord, Tobias, I'm just going to save, save 30 seconds of Googling. I should check. Did you, you wrote it as well, correct? Or I, I know Christy uh, Wilson Keynes, uh, the writer of 1917, wrote it. I've been yeah. working with her for seven years, but, but, but Tobias has written a lot of other stuff. Yeah, no, that's yes. why I was about to. So, well, okay, we'll leave it. Uh, but we're, we're talking to Tobias Lindholm, who's the director of the new Netflix film, The Good Nurse, with Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, which is uh, terrific. And, um, Chilling, as I was saying, you, you may never, you know, in the same way that Jaws kept the entire generation out of the water. Uh, hopefully this will keep an entire generation out of hospitals. Let's say that. <laughs> well, the hospitals could use it, frankly. Right. But, yeah. you know. but, um, but also, and I've, I've been a fan for a while and, and um, uh, Tobias, I apologize. One of the things where I sort of hadn't been putting two and two together. I've just been sort of like, oh, I like that film. Oh, it's that and this and that. But uh, Tobias is also a co-writer of Another Round and The Hunt. 
Um, he directed a couple of movies that uh, really incredible films uh, that I saw when they came out, uh, a hijacking and a war, um, both of which I highly recommend. And also hilariously, uh, my wife and I just finished binge watching uh, Morgan, a uh, Danish TV show, which Tobias is a, a writer on many, many episodes of that. <clears throat> so, um, uh, yeah, no, so, so, so welcome, sir. I am, I am a bigger fan of your work than I realized I was when uh, they first approached us. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, guys. And, you know, I'm uh, probably a, a bigger fan of your show than you are of my work. I am uh, very pleased to, to be here. I have enjoyed many directors, you know, favorite movies. Oh, from, wonderful. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So we were, um, uh, excited, uh, especially after I realized what a big fan I was. <laughs> How often does that happen, Joe? Do you hear like you sort of chug along and then you realize that there's, you know, seven or eight things you really liked and, and it just dawns on you that they're all from the same. Person. No, my, my problem is working with people and then discovering three or four or five years after I work with them that they worked <laughs> on some of my favorite movies or they're, you know, I've, I've worked with TV art directors and then discovered that they had these huge careers that I didn't know about. Right. That I would have been, I would have died to ask them about. I mean, it's just, you know, when you're working is you're, you're, you're busy. But also that happened more often. I know when I sort of like my crew days, I go back and I look up people I worked with or you find out later, but we didn't have, you know, IMDB. It's like now you just sort of like run everybody through it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's astonishing sometimes. But um, I, I, felt, I felt this way when, when I came over. I mean, um, it's my first American feature, The Goodness, right? And mm -hmm. I was meeting with different first ADs and then I met this wonderful dude, uh, uh, Todd Pfeiffer. And then I realized that he had pretty much, you know, done or been the first AD or worked with Jim Jarmusch on the movies that made me fall in love with movie making. Oh, wow. Oh, and then, so, so of course he was hired right away. And then um, later on, I had meetings with, um, with, with Tom Johnston, who is a wonderful uh, script supervisor and, and realizing that he had worked a lot with Corn Brothers. So yeah. I felt like, you know, uh, I felt very spoiled. And then with Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain on set, it, it, it felt... It felt like, you know, a lot of my favorite people had come together to, to help me do this. So I was blessed. That's fantastic. Um, I'm assuming you knew who they were before you cast them. <laughs> Those two I had an idea of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, great, man. Well, we're, we're really psyched to have you. And um, yeah, we'd love to talk to you about sort of some of the films that have inspired you along the way. Um, you're, you're a native of Denmark, is that correct? That's right. So I, I grew up in a small town, 100 kilometers south of Copenhagen, uh, in a family of no filmmakers whatsoever. I think until I got to film school, my, my education in film had been really, really limited down to what was available in the local VHS uh, kiosk. Um, I remember my father had a, a, a an ideological, not so good relationship with Hollywood. So, so one time he took us to the local uh, Danish store, Beerten, it was called, and we picked up a couple of movies. I remember um, the first uh, 48 hours, you know, some of those. And he said, no, you can't watch those. You have to watch something about, you know, let's find something with great nature, with, with, with beautiful shots that's about the world. And he picked out a few. And little did he know that he had picked out, and I'm still to this day trying to find the title but he had picked out the most scary film I have ever seen. And I was seven or eight years old at this time. The first shot is a guy getting his hand chopped off on a pram somewhere in Amazon. And then it just continues with him following into a hole and being attacked by these giant crabs that are crawling from eating his eyes. 
And there I am with my brother. We're not allowed to watch American comedies. <laughs> but these beautiful South American shots seemed to appeal to my father, who was in the kitchen and didn't really understand what all the screaming was about. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Is that, does that ring a bell, Joe? Or you, uh... oh, it sounds like an Italian picture. Well, that makes sense. That's, yes, yes. Any one of a thousand, right? Uh, oh, that's fantastic. So, so did you, um, I mean, did you grow up going to theaters? Were there a lot of theaters where you were? Or were you mostly like catching things on video? So that was the thing. There was, there was nothing. And, and even back then, I don't think we had a TV until I was these seven, eight years old. Um, and we, at, back in the days, we would only have one Danish TV channel called DR, which ended up being the producers of Borgen later on, but it's kind of the Danish BBC. Um, so it would only be that. And they would have every Friday between 7 and 7.30, some cartoons, and then, you know, very rarely any exciting movies. So it, so it took a while. Um, I was, I think, nine when I went to the theater for the first time and watched E.T., Mm -hmm. um, and that, of course, like any other young boy, sparked something. You know, I was lonely, and it was great to see that there were friends out there. And and slowly, um, my brother and I then, a couple of years later, watched the not so well known but wonderful and very important film called Beat Street sure. about uh, about hip hop culture in New York. Mm -hmm. And that really changed our life because suddenly we we there was like a spark of New York in the living room, and we were. We would start to do 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 electric boogie and break dance and try to figure things out and 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 I started to you know make tags and you know wanted to be a graffiti writer and and later we saw the documentary Style Wars that was you know mm. even more elevating for our minds anyway and and that became our way out of out of Nestville, this small town south of Copenhagen and our first goal was to to get to Copenhagen and be part of of that hip hop graffiti culture in there. Um, my, my brother for, for a while was a quite famous Danish rapper and we would travel Denmark with his show. Uh, uh, and, and, and we kind of lift, lift our little New York dream in Denmark back then uh, before, we, before we got into the 20s. And, and I suddenly started to follow cinema very closely. But, uh, but those two, uh, Beat Street and, and Style Wars, were our New York romances and the whole reason for us to, to get out of there. That's, that's wonderful. Um, well, yeah, do you want to sort of start chronologically or how do you want to do this? Just, um, I, I know I broke the rules and, and, and I apologize and we'll, we'll slaughter two of the films as we, we don't get. have any, we don't have any rules. I brought, I brought uh, very, very difficult to limit myself at all, but I brought uh, 12 titles, I believe to the, uh, uh, to the show. And these came to me in this, I put them in, 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 in chronological order. Uh, just because I thought it was kind of interesting suddenly realizing where these favorite movies were centered and mm. how old they actually were and uh, how old that probably makes me, even though I still like to think of myself as a young man. But um, Don't we all? <laughs> the first one, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the first one is not that well known, but it was brought to my attention. I got to film school and every Monday, we would sit from 12 until 6 p.m. and we would just watch films and this film professor would take us through film history. And one of the first days we were there, he showed me Saturday night and Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. uh, a wonderful black and white picture from, from 1960, I think. Um, and it's basically about, and if you see another round, you will see a lot of references or at least ideas that come from that. 
And well, that makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Sure. As I remember it, thematically, what hit was that the title was so perfect because it, it gives the time frame for where these human beings can be alive. Mm -hmm. They are in the mines all the time working hard. So when they get out on Saturday night, they're free all the way until Sunday morning when they have to go to church and then back to the mines. So it was like, this is where you can live. This is where you can breathe. And I, I thought it was so brilliant, um, the title. So, and, I, and I got sucked in because it's, it's, very, it's actually very modern in, in its way that it's, it's shot. There's, a, there's some handheld stuff there. It clearly drags on, 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 on Godard and Truffaut and those, those French guys. And it still has the very classic British social realism built into it, looking at these working class heroes who tries to be alive and dream and live and love in these, I don't know, 12 hours that they have available every week. Yeah. I mean, it's the same writer. It was it Alan Silito who wrote like, um, uh, loneliness of the long distance runner and was kind of a big, a big name in that, in that genre. Um, and yeah, I remember going to a period of just watching all of those and, and yeah, there are all these young, these actors, the, that, the kitchen sink movies, the kitchen, yeah, you know, much to like, much the chagrin of, uh, of the people who made them. Oh, did they, they did not, I didn't know they did. No, like that was a, the, no, not, none of the writers liked being lumped in with uh, kitchen sink movies, you know, and, and sometimes there wasn't, wasn't even a kitchen. Yep. Well, <laughs> they're all, they're all like, you watch five of those in a row and, and it will, it will put you in a very specific, very gray mood for a very long time. Uh, but. There is no doubt, and I, but I think it was movies like that that became the foundation for, 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 for Danish cinema, as we know it now, with the dogma movement and, mm, and short sure. movies. Uh, we're, we've all, always talked about Danish cinema as kitchen sink films, basically because of a budget-wise. So you can't have that many locations, and you can only shoot for, for four or five weeks, eight hours a day. So you can't do that much. So you have to figure a way to, uh, you know, to put it around the, the kitchen sink so you don't have to, to, to move the camera or, or the crew. Uh, right. um, but it's also interesting because I, I felt like a huge connection between this and some of the work that I got to learn from um, from John Cassavetes, another you know one of the big for me big American heroes that I'm proudly on the shoulders of. Um, um, and he is a bigger reason for dogma than anything else. I think that 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 the guys Thomas and Lars and, and, and those guys and Moons who called the Danish screenwriting guru. Um, I think that they basically just wanted to be John Cassavetes back then, and then had to find a way to force themselves into that kind of language where the actors could take control, like his beautiful cast would always do, and where you would see that this would this was all would all be alive. But but uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning was the first one where I saw something that I just hadn't seen before, like people in the '60s being alive and being naturalistic uh, like this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, so many of the movies in that era are, are so stylized, too. So very 60s and glitzy and colorful and unrealistic. Which is great. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. But, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I'm so bored with my own imagination. It's <laughs> like, and, and especially since I was a kid, I remember, you know, playing with, with toy soldiers and then quite soon, maybe five years old, realizing they don't have any emotions. They're not going to die. This is not real. It's just toy soldiers. I can put them away and find them again tomorrow. And I couldn't right. really invest any emotions in it. But, 
But looking out there and see, you know, throw a ball with my dog would make more sense because then at least I would react to that ball and go and, and find it. And then we would be playing a game together. So uh, I, I, I realized that as I'm starting to make films, because every time I'm trying to make up stuff, I'm like, oh, this is not real. And every time I find something from reality that I can build from, um, mm. I'm hugely inspired. And, and you know, um, so, so naturalism for the win for my sake, but I love watching the movies. Don't get me wrong. Pretty Woman is one of my favorite films. So it couldn't be further away from what I'm doing, but nevertheless. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, what's, what's next? So next is um, when I had done hijacking and had just, I think I'd just been nominated uh, with a war. Uh, I got a phone call from the American film director and master David Fincher, who mm -hmm. asked me to come over and work with him on uh, Mindhunter. Um, and, and, and so I did. Clearly, I was educated as a screenwriter. I never went to film school, and, and I actually never had blocked a scene before. I had no idea how to put a camera in the room, what we would do. We would pre-light a scene, and then we would just, you know, move around and react to whatever happened. And we would do it many times, and then we'll find a way to, 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 to get it together in the edit room. And suddenly, Fincher called, and I was like, well, this is going to be my directorial film school. This is where I can learn between, you know, the relationship between framing and, and, and actors and how that can be used as a story, uh, storytelling tool. And on one of the first nights with David Fincher in LA, he took me to a theater and he showed me, we didn't get to see it all, but he showed me the first half of Clute, um, which has become, you know, Alan Pakula's wonderful film um, uh, from 71, I think, that, 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 that is so well acted, so, you know, in, in the opening of that film is so uh, drastic, so revolutionary in the way, because nothing happens, and then suddenly there's an empty chair, and then you realize that somebody is missing. It goes so fast and it's so radical in its, in its storytelling um, and yet so bleak and so naturalistic in its, in its, in its settings and shootings. So um, that was like an eye opener. And, 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 and clearly I understood that, that Fincher wanted me to see this because this was part of his idea about what Mindhunter should be. But it left a huge mark on me. How come you didn't get to see the whole thing? I think we were late because I got lost in my car. I was following him and <laughs> he was driving from, from my first time in LA traffic, uh, driving way too fast. So he lost me at a point and, <laughs> and, and we were a, a little late, but, but the screening was worse, but we had to get out of there before we ended it. I did though buy and that ended it same, the, the same evening in my hotel room on my computer. So, uh, <laughs> but I got to see the first half on a beautiful uh, 35 oh. minute projection. It was just wonderful and very, naturalistic and yet exciting, thrilling experience. And it became a huge inspiration for me and the DP, Jody Lee Lipes, that I, that I worked with on, on The Good Nurse to try to find a way how we could remove color and keep uh, the palette and the movement of the camera um, very low and play with the expectations of the audience instead of actually showing uh, the murderers and include uh, very much so uh, uh, place with the, with the same idea of making you paranoid, but not necessarily have that much to be afraid of in the movie, at least for a long time. Mm. 
Onions, are you a fan of that show? Are you a Clutus? Uh, great. On Pagola, it's very underrated. I think. Yeah, no, I, I I like most of his stuff. So Clute has just never, and it's one that I do need to go back and see for a long time. But it always, it's so like everything you're saying about it. I'm like, yeah, that's that's Clute. It, it to me it was all so underplayed that, um, uh, and I don't know, maybe maybe I just every time I see it, I'm in the mood for a car chase or something. But um, <laughs> well, it's it's a well. very subtle film. It's. Uh, <laughs> I, well, the thing is that 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 for me it was like it had the guts to just be there, to just do mm-hmm. it like that, and to follow around, and to actually, you know, really portray James Fonda as a human being instead of just being, you know, a reason for Clue to 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 follow or to spy on. But you invested in her emotionally, and then yeah. then because there's no a, a real excitement and there's no real car chase when he gets to her apartment the first time. He hears something in the um, in, on the next floor in the attic. Is that the right word? And and he gets up there, and we we're so excited because you know who could it be that is following him? You know, is he onto something? And there he is with just a flashlight, and it's just shot in the darkness. It's so beautiful shots moving around up there. And then, as I remember it, he opens. It's so scary, and he opens the door, and in there is a bunch of hippies smoking smoking weed, and then he leaves again, and nothing really came from it. Uh, but, but but you know, we we really invested in it. Um, um, another thing thing about it is that there's a lamp in, like a glass lamp with 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 some black framings on it, shaped like a flower almost, in Jane Fonda's living room in the in the film, and um, the diner scene in the Good Nurse. The diner scene where mm-hmm. Amy tries to get Charlie to confess. The reason we chose that location was that I came in and I saw all the lamps in there were exactly the same types of lamps, flowers hanging, colored glass with black frame. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and I turned to the producer and said, we don't have to look anymore. We need to make this work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it tells us about his quality as a producer. He was like, all right, cool. Yeah, that's a great reference. Let's do that. Um, but that was the whole reason. So, so that was kind of fun. <laughs> fantastic. The next one was one of the first films I saw as I applied to film school. I didn't know of John Cassavetes. Um, I knew him as an actor. I had not seen, right. but very briefly, just heard his name. And then um, a friend of mine who introduced me to the female screenwriter, Kim Leona, a Danish screenwriter, who introduced me and asked, or at least, you know, um, encouraged me to, to apply to film school. Um, she showed me uh, a woman under the influence from 74, uh, John Cassavetes, wonderful and, and, and wild, wild film. And I don't know if you can imagine, but, but, but since E.T. was my reference point at this time, <laughs> um, suddenly watching this and realizing that my childhood with a crazy dad and a, and a hardworking mom and, and a home that was falling together was made into such a beautiful humane story about family and staying together and 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 and, and the darkness of, of 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 the soul and how difficult 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 it is to live a human life and i was mesmerized by this peter fogg and and um general oh, yeah yeah general Rollins. yeah they're they're both amazing they're just amazing in this and so humane and he allows them to take so much time and and you know it reminded me, it was like coming home and, and that can be, that was also a little scary, but he had found poetic, he had found poetry in, in those settings. And that, yeah. that really uh, meant a lot to me and made me go watch 
all of the films that he had made that I could get my eyes on. And, and, and it is no lie. And it makes sense that, 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 um, husbands, I think is the reason that we ever got the idea to make another round, this idea mm. of friends that are frozen in the middle of life and don't really know where to go from there. And then need to find a way to defrost now in husbands, they go on this journey together and, and, and they try to find out who they are. And, in another round, they go on a, on a more local journey, <laughs> but nevertheless, they go on a journey together, right? Trying to, trying to defrost and, and, and come back to life that has become a boring rhythm of, of emptiness and marriage and kids. And, 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 and uh, so, so, so his films have meant so much. And, and A Woman Under the Influence was the first one of those um, that, 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 that really, really got me, uh, got me going. Is that, is that your favorite Cassavetes or just kind of your entry point? Well, I think so. That's interesting because there's like different parts of movies to have favorite things about. And I think right, the sure. opening of Killing of a Chinese Bookie mm -hmm. is probably my favorite because it's so wild. It's so like, there's no genre. There's like, there's some money exchange. There's a guy who wants something. And then you end up in this, this club. And then you get to understand what it's all going to be about. But it's so just so vibrant and so so alive and so um, exotic. At least seen from a seen from a small apartment in Copenhagen. Like what is going <laughs> on over there? You know. Um, but I think Woman Under the Influence is the one that. Um, well, Gloria's great, but 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 I think that that, that opening night. Oh my God! But 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 still, I it, a Woman Under the Influence has become a reference point in. Right. In when talking to actors, and I and I talked a lot to Jessica uh, and and Eddie mm. uh, about it doing this, and one of the one of the days on set, actually the second last day of shooting, we were doing um, this the interrogation scene where Eddie explodes into a I can't I can't I can't mm. rant, and it was the only scene that we hadn't rehearsed. I didn't want to kind of break it. I thought that if we found the logic in the scenes leading up to this, we would be able to pull off something and, 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 and inspire each other. And I would then, without Eddie knowing, uh, handcuff him to the table just to limit his space so I would force him to do something. Um, and, and I would put him in, a, instead of building a set and being able to remove the wall so there was room for a camera, we put it all in a very small room so that when he was in there and we had two other actors and camera and, you know, it was extremely claustrophobic and, and warm in there. And then I just asked Eddie to do a first take. And the scene was, I think, 12 pages. So this is 12 minutes where he just goes for it. And I had asked Noah Emmerich, this wonderful, wonderful actor that, that yeah. you know, that, that plays the police officer, to put pressure on him. Just try to win this. Just try to get it. Like, don't ever become violent. but push him and um then suddenly eddie started this whole thing i can't i can't smashing his hand and the handcuff and making a lot of noise into the table um and i actually got scared and i was like oh is eddie okay you know what's going on because he was so invested so i went in and i said hey eddie i didn't even get to say anything i just came in and and, and i think eddie must have sensed how i felt because he looked up at me and he said, I'm all right, pal. <laughs> and then he looked down again and we got ready for, for another take. And then we kept just kept doing that for, for 11 hours. 
And I think that it's an anecdote from a woman under the influence where that I read later uh, about uh, Casavetes going to his wife, come back, come back, because he was actually afraid that she had lost it at a point uh, during these uh, during these takes. So yeah, woman under the influence is definitely a reference. Mm. Are there, what are the SAG issues with handcuffing actors? Uh, yeah, I think it, it's only a back. problem if they complain later. If they complain later, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm happy we're saying this now. Now we're all happy with the scene, so, so we'll be That's fine. Right. <laughs> um, we, had, we had this, uh, I had this uh, detective with me all the time that would tell me exactly how they would question. So we did not add stuff just for the fun, but actually try to keep it uh, naturalistic. And, and, and it, he said to me, you can handcuff him just with one. Just kind of give him the illusion of freedom. There's still a way out. He's not completely mm -hmm. cold yet. If he just gives us the information we want to, you know, so so don't don't put it on both hands. Just one to start with. Then tomorrow, if he hasn't confessed yet, we might go yeah. to <laughs> that was a beautiful detail. That makes sense. That makes sense. So the next one from the year later, from 1975, my mom showed me um just around I turned 20, I think. Um, and I just showed it to my 13-year-old son uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is the most important American film for me in my education as a screenwriter. Wow, there okay. were so many theories about screenwriting, so many things about how do you build a movie in sequences? Uh, what is an introduction scene? Um, how much do you need to tell? There's so many rules that we got taught in, in, in film school in Denmark that really uh, came from, or at least that I understood watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And um, I remember that they had made this, um, well, I don't think it was a rule, but a principle that, uh, and it was written on the wall of our screenwriting department in that school. And it was a very small school. Like we were, we were six students getting accepted every second year. So very small, wow. but nevertheless. And two teachers with us all the time. And one of them had written on the wall, all good movies starts with an interview about the movie that just ended. Um, and meaning there's always, there needs to be some sort of interview with the setting of the rules. Um, and then all the, you know, what is this movie? And then, um, and, and, and then all the examples came. And, and, you know, looking at Godfather, we see how, how Kay is interviewing Michael as, he, as we walk around. Well, it starts with basically, with, 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 I think, with the Baker interviewing Godfather about the rules right. of this. Like, I want you to do this. Why can't you help? Why can't you do this? And then we get to understand, okay, there are certain rules. We can kill people. We can be very evil, but we need to do it under some sort of, of of um code of, of code yeah um and and in 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 then 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 Kay and Michael arrives and then she's like so who's that what's going on here and we get to hear about Luca Brazzi oh that guy he this and and we get to hear about Tom it was a an orphan that my that my that my that my dad took into the family and so we got the whole world is introduced to us um as we in these natural settings the film is slowly uh, opening, and then um, when you look at, 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 at well, it's not the complete opening, but after you have kind of landed in the hospital, the first real scene there is Jack Nicholson being uh, interviewed about, and, and the question, the first question there is, do you know why you're here? Mm -hmm. And then he kind of guesses, 
And by his answers to this interview, he introduces his own character. He's been to so many fights. He's, he's funny. He's kind of, he's a lovable guy. He has a sense of humor, but he also has aggression issues. So there's like the whole setup about, about this, this, this guy is set. And then we are ready for him to enter uh, the universe. And, um, and, and, and watching uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest really, for me, like became like, oh, that's what it means. It's actually people just, you know, sitting down and talking together um, about, uh, about this. And, and, and this is why we introduce um, Jessica in the first scene. Well, first of all, the opening of, of The Good Nurse is like a, a, a small little... Uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Homage to, to the verdict where you would zoom in on Paul Newman by his pinball machine. And in, in the goodness, we're zooming in on Eddie as he's watching a patient dying. Uh, but nevertheless, kind of same setting in front of a window, backlit. Um, and there he is. And you are like mesmerized. What's going to happen to this guy? Okay, and now I understand that I need to follow him. It's a three, three minute and a 40 second sh shot. And, and that's too boring. So we did the, the verdict trick and made it into a title sequence where we just, you know, Film by and slowly, you know, allowing ourselves to take the time to set up this uh, this shot. But the real opening of the film is when we meet uh, Jessica's character, Amy, and she walks into uh, this patient that will later on become the first victim of Charlie Cohen, but uh, uh, Anna Martinez, and Anna's husband has a few questions to Amy. Um, can she have something to drink? Um, uh, can I stay here? You know, different questions. That's kind of an interview into the rules of this hospital. Is he allowed to stay there as a relative? Uh, can she get anything to drink? How sick is she? All of those things that we need to understand as we walk into this hospital world is all said, or at least that was the idea, is all, is all said in that scene, in that interview scene. So it was really one of the principles that I took with me from uh, uh, from from film school, um, I don't well, if know. You like, if you like movies that start with interviews, you're really going to love Tar. Oh, um, and I've heard. I which heard. which not only which not only starts with um, the end credits at the beginning, all the end credits, like you know, <laughs> oh. five minutes of end credits, and then a 15 minute interview uh, with the lead character on a stage, That's and uh, it's. You, you're watching it and you think, boy, this is really experimental. And, and, but it, it, all, it all works. It all pans out. There's a reason why they did it that way. It's, it's a very interesting movie. Mm. I can't wait to see it. I haven't, yeah, had, I haven't had a chance yet, but I hear very good things about it. Kate Blanchett is always amazing. Isn't she? She's amazing in it. Um, yeah, so, 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 so that was the one. Do you remember um, The Celebration, one of the first Dogma films? Sure, of course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so the guy who wrote it on the wall was Mons Rucco, who wrote Celebration with Thomas Winterberg back then. Mm. And and if you look at at, at um, if you look at the celebration, it opens with our main character walking down a long road. We don't know where he's going, but he's on a cell phone. We don't hear the voice in the other end, but we hear the answers to the interview. Yeah, I have no idea how they're gonna react. Yeah, they're probably gonna be, get pretty pretty pissed off. I don't know, but I'm. Yeah, I'll probably get out of here and be back tonight. So he's kind of giving us his whole plan in this interview where we don't even hear the questions. We only hear the answers. But yet it is, it is this, um, this interview. And then 
Another principle from the same guy that I really got to enjoy just because it made me feel like there was like some elbow room, like Lebensraum in the, in the screenplay, uh, 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 you know, a process was that the midpoint should always be some sort of variation of the opening. Like you need to remind the audience where we came from. So let's make sure that the, that the midpoint is. And in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, we meet the hospital inspector or, or, or director or whatever he is, again, exactly around the midpoint. So there's like, all right, now we are mm-hmm. this far. Um, and in celebration, that where everybody is arriving to the castle to go to this, uh, well, celebration, and the midpoint is all the same people now trying to leave, but their car keys have been stolen. Right. So it's the same characters in the same locations, uh, but now just changed because of this story that has taken place. And that became like a comforting uh, a thought because then I always felt like I don't have to write a f- whole screenplay. I don't have to write 100 pages. I can just limit myself to 50. At least then I'll then I'll know where to go in the first 50 uh, 50 pages. So so in the beginning mm. that 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 advice meant a lot. Fantastic. Yeah, we should say uh, celebration starring among others uh, Paprika Steen. Joe, That's who's, right. who's been who's been on our show? Tobias. He's been on our show. Oh, great. Yeah, and, he's uh, wonderful. A good friend. He's great. <clears throat> yeah, she's fantastic. He is fantastic. Well, let's jump now that I'm going to do it. Let's go to the verdict uh, now that we're talking about it. Right sure, yeah. That opening, that opening shot. Um, so I, I hadn't seen this film for a long time. I saw it in film school and then I kind of forgot about it. And then as we started to build and figure out what to do with, um, with the good nurse, I rewatched the verdict and I was just blown away by the, by the storytelling. And then... I found this podcast series or this series of, of um, lessons given by John Truby about how the verdict was built. Like, what's the principal storytelling in it? What problems does it have? And he uses it as an example to set his own principles on, on, on screenwriting. And, 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 and suddenly I realized how modern and how great that picture was. And... In that, we just felt well. Let's find a way to just zoom in on, in on Charles Collin as, as the verdict zooms in on 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 Paul Newman. Um, it's an interesting one because it's kind of it kind of stumbles to start with. It's like you you know, he has such a big problem um, with the alcohol and with him being self destructive, and you you kind of know that, and then you send him on this road where his wand is changing a couple of times until the case really gets started. Um, is it, you know, is it the love story? Is it the woman or is winning the case or is it fighting for justice for these people? What is actually a thing? And what is his ghost? What is his big problem in this world? What is his like need to figure out so that he can become a better version of himself? And then it's, that's only noted on like with an, when you, when you get to his apartment far into the film, with this uh, one night stand. And then there is a photo of him and an ex-wife um, on, on, the, on the bed table. And he turns it over or she looks at it. And then much later on, his old friend now gives us the backstory. What was actually happened to him and right. his whole life and why did it fall apart? And I think it's such a wonderful you know, uh, way to tell the story. And, and, and yet it doesn't really follow the rules that 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 a lot of us you know become slaves of 
Yeah, and it's true. And it's, and it's, you know, um, uh, I know it's, it's, he's, he's fallen from grace for a lot of reasons, but, but that was David Mamet kind of at his peak and Sidney Lumet, of course, being one of the greats. And the two of them are so, so, so very good at what they do that. Yeah. As you say, you don't even really notice how kind of radical the film is while you're watching it. Cause they're so good at it. It's just. <laughs> well, and the supporting characters are so good and so yeah. well cast that uh, there's, there's always something interesting going on in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it. That scene when he, when he comes up there and he, and he takes a photo of, 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 of his client, the, the, the young, the young woman who's in the bed. It just moves me so much every time because as mm -hmm. as the picture develops, his he's getting to an understanding of what he's actually in the middle of. Yeah. So everything comes together together right in that point, and it's just such a clever, simple idea to have a photo developing at the same time and hit as his the idea. idea or yeah, you know, uh, uh, develops and and uh, emotionally, it's it's like how do you that's always a big question. Like, how do you make these scenes come down to one simple thing? Um, and, 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 and I have to say that scene is just brilliant. Yeah, that's a great, great movie. And like most of the films we're talking about with Tobias and uh, in fact, with our other guests, um, it is available in hard, physical, tangible media at moviesunlimited.com. Our wonderful sponsors, the experts on movies since 1978. They're not only huge fans of our show, but they feature many of the movies we discuss here. So you can easily find them to add to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want. And there's usually a ton of great content and bonus features like director commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodies. If you go to the moviesunlimited.com website, they've got a whole section for our show, you click on each individual episode. It'll have every movie we've discussed in that episode listed. You click on the link. It'll take you to where you can buy it. Uh, they've got popular films, obscure films, hard-to-find films, imports, and so many more. So uh, go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website, where shipping is always free on orders over $50. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's jump to, to the Sea of Love which my wife always laughs about because I bring it up all the time. And it was the first, it, I, I learned very much from reading. I didn't even see it first. I read a Richard Price wonderful screenplay. Um, that was it. They had a very limited library of screenplays in the Danish film school, and it was one of them. And the way that he writes, he makes all these, or at least how he did back then, mm -hmm. he made all these comments you know, almost directing, you know, but instead of, of making it a direction, he would write it in as a question. Is it sadness we see in his eyes? Question mm -hmm. mark. So he's kind of, you know, manipulating everybody to, 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 to think the same as him at the same time. And as he kind of makes you think that you are coming up with all these uh, extra small things, um, you know, writing a screenplay is basically, you know, you can only work with what we can see and what we can hear. And it's the combination of those 
and how those are connected that creates the emotions in the in in the films. And yet here was the first time where I sophisticated saw somebody who had sophisticated the directions um, in the screenplay. But the film, um, I just think, is great. Yeah. Um, it starts so with the, the, the introduction of Al Pacino's character. Um, they, as I remember, they're doing this scam where they are uh, NYPD, but they invited all the people that have warrants out, you know, and then right. they've made them all think that they've been chosen to meet the Yankees. So they all show up to, <laughs> in this public hall somewhere and they all sit down and it's breakfast and meeting the Yankees and all the police officers are dressed in like Yankees clothes. So they're like all the people working for the Yankees and they're all these guys uh, 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 comes in and they sit down and breakfast is served. And then um, Al Pacino gets on stage and says, I got good news and bad news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Yankees are not showing up and you're all under arrested. <laughs> and then somebody else like, what's the good news? And he says, we put vodka in the orange juice. And then as I remember, and they poured around like, <laughs> so now everybody can get a little drink before they, before they go to jail. Then, and so that's like, that's a good police officer. Great introduction. What a guy. Yeah. You really want to be him. Great sense of humor. Wonderful person. Still doing the right thing. Then just to make it underline that they sent him outside on his way into his car. Now this gentleman comes running down with his kid in his hand. And he's like, is this the Yankees place? Am I too late? And he has his young son, seven, eight years old. And our main character now is like in a dilemma. Should I arrest this guy in front of his son and be a bad guy? Right. Right. So he asked for his name and he's checking the list of what he has done. Had he been a murderer, had he been a rapist, had he been, he would have done it. But it's just something about some parking tickets. So he says, ah, sorry, it's over. You're too late. And he's like, I brought my son. He said, yeah, sorry, it's too late. He flashes without the son seeing his badge. Now he knows. And he says, so just leave. And there's like a moment where, 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 the, where, the, where the father looks at him and, and says, okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. And then he walks away and Al Pacino yells after him, catch you later. Yes. Then <laughs> <laughs> the movie can begin. And it's such a wonderful introduction to a, to, to a character. Um, and, and it feels, and, it has the feel of a thing. I know that was like, his, um, probably like, you know, as a giant, giant fan of Richard Price's uh, novels as well. And he'd taken that long break uh, where he sort of came back with a almost completely different style and had written clockers. And he had spent a lot of time with uh, not just uh, you know, drug, drug gangs and so forth, but he spent a lot of time with uh, New York police. That, that feels like something you pick up from a cop. That does not feel like something that pops on just unforced out of a screenwriter's imagination. And uh, uh, like those little kind of details, because it, it really feels real that that whole bit it feels so real it feels so real and 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 the whole the whole setting is so everything about it is just real it doesn't feel like it's lit it doesn't feel like there's done anything and a very young and unknown samuel l jackson is one of the uh, people in the crowd that gets arrested uh so it also introduced uh, one of the great ones to come right yeah 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 I, I remember reading somewhere that he, that, that Richard Price wrote it because he was going through a divorce. 
and mm. wanted to, you know, to find a way uh, to find a way to get out all this anger about his ex-wife out, and and um, and then he he decided to do this story where Al Pacino is struggling with jealousy, and he has lost his wife to another police officer, and he's upset about it, and he drinks a little too much because of it, and and that really, really, when I read that, really meant something, and resonated. I think. You know, the big difference between American cinema and Danish or not Danish European cinema is that American cinema seems to always introduce characters as citizens in some sort of profession. You know, what do they mm. do in society? So it's about a journalist, a president, a sheriff, right. a bank robber, Good point. somebody yeah. in what they do with their life and how they contribute to society. And that's how we look at them. In this case, a police officer. European cinema is obsessed with psychology. So it's like, you know, these herd animals that are walking around with, with all their emotions. And then maybe the, it's a police officer solving a murder case. But it's kind of, it's, it, it, it kind of doesn't really matter. What really matters is how they feel and how they develop and how they can sleep nights and, 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 and stuff like that. You know, it's about taxi drivers, right? It's, that's American cinema. And, and European cinema is about these individuals that, that walks around and struggles with living a life. Right. And, and his translation about going through a divorce and having jealousy with his, uh, you know, with, uh, connected to his ex-wife, and then writing a wonderful, thrilling a story mm -hmm. about about a killer who's loose and a police officer who needs to to catch him, and at the same time is struggling with his own personal life, just seemed perfect to me at the time. Yeah, it's funny you say taxi driver because taxi driver is actually not as much as it's a movie about a taxi driver. It's not a movie about a taxi driver, if you know what I mean. It's good. It's the more the more of the European kind of approach. Well, it is, but 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 still, the approach becomes becomes him driving around, and it be, again another great interview. That film opens with a job interview where he goes in, and you get to know that he can't sleep nights, that he's uh, just came home right. from the war. There's so many things that you get to know about um, about Travis in 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 that opening scene. Um, and also that he he's looking for love because I, go, I think he goes straight to the theater and, mm -hmm. and tries to hit on uh, on the on the ticket selling girl there. Um, and then you so you kind of understand his loneliness. It's like two yeah. great interview scenes in a row from from that one as well. Um, sea of Love is such a weird film in many ways because it's so perfectly written and it's also like really in its time. So it's it has this saxophone music and. And like <laughs> smoke coming out, yes. <laughs> and and she's stunningly beautiful, and at the same time, it's so naturalistic in elements. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I remember being hesitant to see it when it came out because, uh, in spite of the cast, because it carried itself like one of those kind of cheesy, you know, late eighties, early nineties erotic thrillers, and and it was finally Richard Price writing it. I was like, all right, all right, I'll go. And, it had elements of being a cheesy, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's not what it is. Yes. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Some really, really good shots. And, and, and just, you know, this idea of a killer who, who kills and then puts on this record, uh, The Sea of Love, it was like, you know, it was, it, it was like so, such a, almost like a cliche, but it was so well thought of, you know, and it had mm -hmm. that. Uh, the, the thing, uh, you know, like, is it an M where the, where the killer whistles the same song every yeah. time it comes yeah. and it's scary so it has the same reference to to a song and now just uh yeah. Yeah. oh and then it ends with that amazing tom waits version of the song remember um, is that right yeah absolutely loving yeah, it you I'm, couldn't I'm find so it anywhere forever 
finally, he finally put it out on a CD, but it was just, it was so good. It was so good. I'm going to find that when we're done talking because that, that I, I couldn't imagine anybody better to do it. It's pretty great. Come with me. So we'll move on to seven by David. Uh, Joe, am I right? How many of these have we done? 7,000? I don't think anybody's ever brought up seven, ever. I don't think so. I can't remember it. Can't remember, right. Which it is, is weird. It feels too easy, doesn't it? I, I mean, Citizen Kane comes up, you know, all well, the time. Well, but it's, you know, if, if it's the movies that made me, you know, unless you're planning to be a serial killer, maybe Seven isn't the movie that made you. <laughs> <laughs> or a filmmaker, you know. But I mean, yeah, it's such an amazing film. I remember walking out of that knowing you had, you had seen something that was changing like this medium, you know, it, um, completely uh, incredible completely film. Perfect. Perfect film. I mean, yeah. this really, really rare where something comes together and everything is just music. Like everything is just perfect. Um, and I think that after, you know, um, silence of the lambs, it, it, it felt like, how do you ever, and at least I saw Silence of the Lamb before I saw Seven. I wasn't really a movie buff back then, but that was the order. It, it, I think it came out in as well, right? But 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 I saw uh, Seven Second, and I felt like, you know, Hannibal Lecter was such a great serial killer. Like, so how do you ever? And then, you know, with Kevin Spacey here, they just pull it off and make somebody that's just so perfect. And I think if you look at any serial killer ever since, there are references to Seven. It's like Seven created a whole new way of doing this um, with, 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 with the understanding of and, and then the, 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 the dining scene and the diner scene is probably the best diner scene out there. And it was a huge inspiration just in the way we shot it for, for how we shot our diner scene in, um, in The Good Nurse. But the diner scene when Morgan Freeman talks to Gwen Patro about her problem and she tells him, that she's pregnant and you get that secret that becomes unbearable because now you know something that yeah. will hurt you even more when the, when the film ends. Um, I was not a father back then. Oh, it's getting dark here, but I was, I was not a father uh, back then. Um, and when he tells the story about he never became a father, but you know, he would spoil that kid uh, totally if he ever had, and there was not a time where yeah. he didn't regret uh, that 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 they didn't have that child really really resonated like you know with becoming a father something what responsibility is it that you have in this world as a parent right yeah yeah um it's why I'm, I'm gonna say something blasphemous i have always every time i see it i've had a little bit of a problem with the ending not that um i don't love it i just feel like there's a way to they had an opportunity that that they missed have we ever talked about this joe i guess not because it has not come up I always felt as much as I, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I, I write stuff where you, you know, the, the, the ending is the sort of cathartic joy at, uh, you know, the bad guy getting his head blown off and all the rest of that. But they actually had the opportunity, I thought, to make a movie in which you gave the audience that same blood rush of, of just sort of joy and, and carnality. And, uh, by having Brad Pitt not kill Kevin Spacey, he could have, he could have refused to, and you could have ended that with Kevin Spacey just losing his mind out there in the desert, you know, screaming and, and losing and actually showing a movie like this, showing a cop in a movie triumphing over a villain by not shooting him to death. And I thought, oh, and, well, that's, and, not and, the, that's not the American way. 
Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. Because it always, it always, again, the thing, you know, the movie ends and then Morgan Freeman says at the end, uh, it's, it's a, you know, what is it? Uh, Hemingway said it's a good world and worth fighting for, I believe. I believe half of that. And I get to the end of that movie and I'm like, why? Everything I've just seen in your, in your world is it's a shit world and there's no reason to go on. Like, give me some little ray of hope in this thing. And I don't mean to knock it. I love the film. I watch it over and over again, but the ending always just like, mm, almost. I'm, I'm kind of torn because I, I definitely um, see what you mean. And at the same time, I find it so, at the time, so inspiring that this bad guy just won. And it, it, it's like, it's a structure of this tragedy where, where, where Brad Pitt comes in and he's so cocky and he just wants to do this and he can do everything. Yep. And he, not knowing that he's fighting against the gods that they will never allow him to win. Uh, but nevertheless, he really believes it and he makes us believe it. And, and then, um, and, and, and then we count to seven. And I love that about the ending is it makes me always go like, so that was that one, that one, that one, that, oh my God, the last one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, which is like a, a pretty brilliant way of counting now because you lost, lose track at a point and you accept, okay, it's seven. So we're waiting for it. But for the seventh one to be unexpected uh, yeah. makes to me every time at least. Yeah, no, all, all that works. And it's, again, I, it's, it's almost an ideological quibble I have, and that's not fair, right, but it's, right. uh, it's, uh, but yeah, I, I love it. In fact, now I gotta, gotta go but watch how it for the it, 73rd how, time. How should, how, how, how should he, how should they, so, so, so he should have restrained himself and not you, do you, Yeah, you play it all the way up to that. And uh -huh. the audience is like, you know, and, and cause the audience, I think even the most bloodthirsty audience recognizes that what he's about to do is bad in the sense of don't give it to him you're like oh my god he's going to he's going to take you with him if you pull the trigger and there is that sense of dread even though you're like kill him kill him and if somehow he actually manages not to do it and you leave kevin spacey shattered and brad pitt just walks away it's 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 still it's a hard ending you still get his you get to see what the plan was and just the fact that you could almost have made a movie where the audience is cheering the non-murder of a villain by a cop just felt like, Oh, you had it. It was right there. Cause that's hard to do. That's incredibly hard to do because, you know, cinematic violence is wonderful and we like it and we like our, we like our revenge, you know? I like that. I like that idea. And that actually to me speaks to, to, to the way at least we wanted to end the, uh, the good nurse with, with, uh, you know, a whole system can take down the serial killer, but it takes this struggling single mom with a heart condition. Right. To sit down in a room and, and remind a serial killer of his own humanity. And that and suddenly he, you know, she stops him and he and he feels good about it. There was there was there was mm -hmm. something equal to at least the idea of, of why we try what we tried to do there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. But again, to be clear, I love seven. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just, that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. Just I mean. the look of it, everything about it. Oh. Everything, everything. It's, 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 it, oh, and this, the, the sound. sound. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. I give you the scene where he shoots at them when they're in that doorway or in that hallway knocking on the door and just the sound of the first bullet that's fired at the two cops is, it's like, I'd never heard a bullet sound like that in a movie before. And it's just shattering. It's... And then, and, and because that sound and it, it, it hangs you with you for a while. And then we chase everybody outside and we get out in that very narrow street where the trucks yeah. are. And suddenly these gunshots sound so different. And, yeah. and, and, and it's like, it's not a, when, when I did, I did a, a war, right? And mm -hmm. we, 
we actually watched this sequence to try to figure out how do we make sure that everybody gets how claustrophobic or how dangerous it is to be shot at. Because mm. what Seven did for the first time that I've heard is that it changed perspective and resonation completely from when you're inside until you're outside. Right. Which suddenly made it alive because, you know, in many films, the, the, the gunshot is put on after. They all sound the same. Right. Yeah, they all sound, yeah. Um, yeah. Michael Mann did the same in Heat in the shootout. It's like mm-hmm. all kinds of, 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 of sounds from those bullets. Then I watched uh, Restrepo and I realized that the gunshots just was more like, yeah. and then people would fall and die. There was... <laughs> Like it was like ping, bang, bang, boom. It was just these small uh, 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 sounds. And we tried to, in a wall, we tried to, when we were behind walls, it would be like, mm-hmm. then when you were looking up, it was just a little more, you would hear them fly by. Um, but you, we would try to make them quiet so that it sounded like bullets we hadn't hit, heard before, basically inspired by, well, that hallway shootout in, in, in seven. Um, sure. Yeah. There's also um, was under fire the Nick Nolte, right. Joanna Cassidy film, and I remember one of the first times I'd ever seen gunfire done differently. And it's kind of like what you're talking about. It was from if you were you know a quarter of a mile away from the guy who's shooting at you, you would hear the bullet, not the shot. Exactly. Exactly. And hear, it's, and that's terrifying in a way that just the usual bang bang is not. Yeah, because the fact that death come unexpected. Mm-hmm. You'll be dead before you hear it. I mean, it's just it's just a, a, a pretty nice principle. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say nice, but yeah. Storytelling <laughs> tool. Not in Horrific principle. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the next one, um, and, and and this one we don't have to talk that much about, but I just love it. It's the it's 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 the I think, even though how much I love Thomas and, and how much we've worked together and how much I love celebration, I still feel that that the idiots. Is mm. the best dogma movie ever made because it oh, it wow. rides it rides the rules so hard. There's no cheating. It like it goes <laughs> it goes all the way, and I, and I find that extremely experience uh, very uh, exciting and inspiring. And it broke to me at least very you know I was 19 when when they came out. It broke a handful of new Danish actors that I didn't know of that did such a wonderful job. Boril Jorgensen who plays. Uh, uh, the woman who has lost her child and tacks along on this mm-hmm. crazy experiment. Um, she plays so well and she's so sensitive and uh, she's the new lead in the new kingdom. So he kind of, I guess, stuck oh, to her. Um, just talking about that. Um, but, 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 but what a wonderful performance she has. And, and the fact that they, it's such a, it's such a, a, a first world um, idea to, you know, find your inner freak or whatever and then just do it together for fun or to, for personal revelation. You have to, to eat caviar like somebody with, that couldn't control their body would. And it's just way, 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 way too much. And then yet done on the, in the most simple way with these dogma principles. It just seemed like a perfect, uh, a right. perf- perfect idea. And also speaking of paprika, she, she shows up there too, right? She does. I, I guess in those days, Paprika showed up in every film possible. Everything, uh, yes. Um, and my other, and I asked her once, and she sort of ducked it. But there was a great story about uh, Lars von Trier when a reporter wanted to come on the set, and you know, all the actors were naked, and and he said, "Well, um, 
you know, you have to, you have to come naked. We all, we shoot the film naked. The entire cast and crew is naked. It's like, you have to do that if you want to do it. And there were, do you know this story? Oh yeah. Well, well, well that's the story and it's true. So uh, is it true? And then the, the, the journalist yeah, steps out onto the set. He's taken off all his clothes. And of course the entire cast and crew are fully clothed was the, <laughs> but, but that was a thing back then in, in Centropa where they, where, where they did this. I mean, every time you went oh, out Centropa. there, they, okay. they have a, they have a swimming pool and, and, you know, and, and Lars and his producer, Peter Olbeck would jump in naked. And, you know, a lot of people felt, you know, that they needed to follow. Um, uh, and my wife was trained early on in her career as, as, as a, as a, as a producer uh, with, with those guys. And there are many great stories about how they, wow inspired a whole Scandinavian generations to make film, but, uh, but yeah, it wasn't boring. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, you won't get the whole story from me, but there's another great story, including, um, the whole Swedish film Institute, a sauna, a bottle of vodka and a fire alarm. And, you know, then you can ask somebody else about the truth about it, but it okay. completely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> I feel like we have a, had a disproportionate number of Danish guests, Joe. So we'll, uh, we'll probably get another one soon and we'll ask them that story. You should, you should, you should. Uh, that is fun. But I, I, I know that they did, they, they did not go home in their own clothes from the Swedish Institute. That's, that's, that's all <laughs> I, can, I can say. Um, uh, awesome. And fund by the Daden brothers is the next one. And it could be any one of their films um, or at least a lot of them. But, but this one was, was the first one where I understood some of, some of their simple camera principles and how they follow characters around. And, you know, we see it in Rosetta as well, but, but the idea that you, that you just follow these people around in a world, um, in this case, um, a story about a guy who gives his own child away because he basically himself is a child and can't take care of that uh, child. And there's so many things in that film that means a lot. But overall, the reason that I bring this is that the, that the, the Den brothers have, I think, been the most influential European filmmakers for my generation, at least. Mm. Um, I think that the way that they have humanized characters, the way that they have made um, you know, critique of systems, the way that they have played out really important political messages, not caught in classic social realism where it's a political statement about money or socialism, but actually just looking at, in a, in a very naturalistic way, looking at some of these characters and made us all understand uh, what is wrong in the once in a while very self-good Western Europe that thinks that we have figured everything out. Um, and, 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 then, and then at the same time, they have more than anybody elevated this into, into big, big cinema. I, I don't know the film. I mean, I know of the film. I've not seen it. It's a, a bit of a... Two wonderful performances about these parents to this, to this infant that, 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 that just not, they just can't take care of the baby, but they don't know that. And they want some money. And then they hear, well, you can get some money by selling it. It's just That's such a terrible, terrible story. And yet, such a, a, a realistic and in some way, the ending um, really inspires to, to do better in life or to remember what, mm. what, what is good in it. But, but mainly, it's meant as a shout out to, to, to the Daden brothers, I, uh, as like, equally as important as Haneke has been. Um, you know, whose first film, or the, at least the first one I saw, Benny's video could have been on the list because that in itself is just one of the most scary films um, that I have seen. 
Um, so yeah, they, they, they mean a lot. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that the most of my generation at least are on the shoulders of, of these guys. Um, have you, have you seen that one, Joe? No. Yeah. It's a, it's an embarrassing, uh, Oh yeah, there's there is a lot of there's a few titles out there to pick from. <laughs> there's always something. I have a I have a friend who's a massive cinephile who confessed to me the other day that he'd never seen East of Eden, and that made me feel much better about everything. <laughs> that, that that reminds me of a uh, I I was lucky enough to be a advisor at a couple of times at the screenwriters lab in Sundance, and one of the first time I went, I was honored because Quentin Tarantino was also one of the advisors. So we got to mm. spend a couple of days together uh, there talking to, to all these wonderful young screenwriters um, about, about, the, about their scripts. But one evening he, he presented this uh, like party game that, that is exactly about this. Everybody has a film that they always pretend that they have seen because it's <laughs> embarrassing. But you will, when people start to talk about it, you're not along. It's, yeah, oh yeah, that's great. That's great. And, um, and, and so this group of very uh, self-conscious uh, uh, artists who thought highly of their own careers had to sit in that circle and admit what film they had been lying about. And, and there were some surprising answers out there. And uh, the embarrassment for me is that yeah, I, 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 I never saw Jaws. Oh wow! And you know, I've I've made up for it, but yeah. but but that was a huge embarrassment um, uh, for me that evening. Fascinating. Yeah, mine is Gremlins. So I keep pretending. To <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh my God, Gremlins! And thank you so much for that. <laughs> I've never seen it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. I'm going through favorite films with my 13 year old son these weeks, and oh, fun. Uh, and 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 Gremlins is definitely on the list. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait for him to see it, and I'm I'm certain it holds up. I haven't seen it for a while. Uh, let me know. I'm still I'm still waiting to see it. The oh, uh, <laughs> Joe's getting pregnant on me. I've seen it. I've seen it. I have them both on Blu-ray. Um, uh, we have time for one more there, Tobias. Oh, yeah. You've got one more. So let's... I got I got the, the, the last one, and and um, it is uh, United 93 by uh, Paul Greengrass. Um, mm. I could never have made a hijacking without Paul Greengrass making United 93. And the irony of that is that then he made Captain Phillips, Captain Phillips. after I did yeah. uh, a hijacking. Um, I think that the, that the, that the, that the, well, there's only one thing about that film that now that I rewatched it, that I am wondering, and, and now I'm going to do what you did to seven. I love this film and yet <laughs> it is not the ending that I'm not, but I'm questioning the opening, the opening I realized, and I did not remember it. Like I remembered it as us arriving to an airport seeing people saying goodbye to their loved one on phones, making that one last phone call, uh, running to the bathroom, nearly not making this, this flight, United 93. Um, but it opens with this group of young Muslim men in a hotel room uh, praying together. Mm -hmm. um, and that surprised me. I just didn't remember it. I really, really thought of it as opening in an airport with people arriving. And, and, then we go to the airport after we've seen these young men pray. We go to the airport and then one of them arrive and we kind of realize now that something's going to happen. Uh, uh, but it could have opened just as people would. And it should have maybe in my mind opened. It's, it's more contained. Yeah, it's less. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I need a minute to sort of enunciate why, but yeah, I agree. And, and, and I think that it's, you know, it's such a beautiful thought to be with somebody from somewhere calling his wife and they have plans tomorrow and they're humanizing the whole flight with these individuals that all have different plans, you know, the, the plane ride is going to be like a little pause in their busy lives and then they're going to uh, live on and, and then they enter. And, and, and we, of course, already know what, what this is going to be because everybody knew what United 93 was. So it was not like it was. Yeah. The, so, and yet, because we started to love these characters and, and the way that they, that they were together, um, it really made sense. But I, I, I love that film for so many reasons. The way that he treated uh, relatives, the way that they reached out to everybody, the way that they made sure that everybody accepted them making this film. And I think he inspired me with the responsibility he took on that if I am telling this story, I need to make sure that everybody feels all right. And, and, and I think that is the responsibility we carry when we tell true stories, right. we, when was, we enter um, that darkness, right? Was the hijacking based on a true story or was it just a, a sort of amalgam? So it was, it was, it was like a, a mixture of, of different uh, circumstances. Right. And that was basically, I, I would have loved to do the exact true story, but my budget did not allow, uh, allow that. So I had to, we had to rent a smaller, uh, a smaller boat, for example. It, it costs, uh, at that time, $15,000 a day keeping that boat running. Right. So my producers were like, well, you can't pick one that's going to cost you $50,000. That's just not possible. Um, but we were looking out for, a, for a bigger boat. It was built on a real negotiation, and all the tactics from that was all correct, and all the remarks in there was all correct. The building of the, of the room was all correct. I just changed the, the ship size and, and stuff around that to, to, fit, to fit our budget. But I, I will say I, I prefer that only because you're sitting there in the film. Um, I remember not knowing uh, how it's going to end. And the fact that you can't pull out your phone and go, yeah, how did, oh, yeah, Captain Phillips, what, what happened there? You know, where you can in that film yeah. um, is, you know, it, it adds to the tension, which I think is really important. I agree, and it and it allowed me to do a more rational, not not rational, radical ending, at least emotional. When when we think everything is over, and then suddenly this young boy is playing around with a gun, and and now the whole thing. Don't spoil it! Don't spoil it! Not everyone's seen it. Or, or... Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> go, go, go watch it. Yet, <laughs> no, it go it watch was, it. It's a wonderful film. It was it was a huge uh, reminder of of the, the value of the of the falls ending, the ending mm -hmm. that you are either feeling or hoping for, but but nevertheless the the one that comes just before the real ending, right? Yes. Um, uh, that was like, like really trying to, to, to hunt and you take, take advantage of, of the false, the false ending. The fun story to end with on that is connected to Paul Greengrass and, and Captain Phillips, because while I was writing and getting ready to shoot a hijacking, I was Googling a quote from Paul Greengrass on United 93. I, mm. There was something he had said about the responsibility we have when we're portraying real people and real stories and real traumas. And then, so I was Googling that. And then in that process, I suddenly saw that Paul Greengrass was going to do with Tom Hanks a movie called Captain Phillips about a huge Maersk, Alabama, being uh, uh, hijacked by Somali pirates. And I, I was in this small hut out in Nordic film in, in Copenhagen, and I ran out to my producer's office. And he was in a meeting. I just ran straight in. And I said, forget about the last millions. We need to go now. We cannot be the cheap Danish <laughs> version of Captain That's right. Phillips. You can't come out after. Yes. You can't come out after. So we need to go now. And, you know, let's just go with that small boat. We'll figure it out. 
just let's let's shoot in August and not in and not in December. Um, and so it went. That's hilarious. We went down and found a boat in, in Mombasa, Kenya, and sailed onto the Indian Ocean. And like that wasn't enough. We could not afford insurance. We couldn't get the whole thing insured. We realized when we were almost in Mombasa, so we spent all the money instead on hiring um, uh, armed guards that would go out with us uh, on this boat into the Indian Ocean not knowing that they had never been on a boat before. So on the first <laughs> day of shooting, they were all seasick, just sleeping around. On the floor. <laughs> Fantastic. And we were praying to God that we wouldn't get hijacked. That's, that's great. What was, um, didn't that, yeah, that just happened with, um, oh my God, Joe, what was it? The, the Ron Howard film that just came out with Vigo in it about the, uh, the rescuers of those kids trapped in the 13, cave. And, uh, yeah. And like in Indonesia, was it? And yeah, it's called 13, um, Days, I think. Thir- something. Thir- 13 something. Terrible. And uh, it's supposed to be pretty good, but there's also a movie that came out at the exact same time that's the exact same story with the actual people who did the rescue playing themselves. Wow. And I think is they it, came out like it, a is week it, apart. Is it the football boys in Thailand? Yeah, yes, that's it. Thank you. My brain is mush. Oh, yeah. it, is, it is that story. And Ron Howard did a version of it with, with actors um, uh, and a budget. And then there's another version that came out at pretty much the exact same time. That is the actual people playing themselves, but in a dramatic feature about the same, the same thing. And I, interesting. I want to watch both of them back to back. And there is a documentary out as well. I believe that just, Oh, wow. See, now it's a, now it's a weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Have a long weekend in front if you're trapped in a cage in Thailand. And Elon Musk is the bad guy in all of them. I don't know. Do you remember when that whole thing? I mean, what is it? Oh, 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 (laughs) sometimes, you know, they make our jobs too easy. It's just, uh, they're playing it out so crazy out there. Exactly. Uh, Well, well, Tobias, man, thank you so much. This is, this has been a blast. And, um, the good nurse is, uh, uh, on Netflix, um, also in theaters. Um, and, uh, uh, and just to show you what a classy podcast this is, we talked about Danish cinema for, for an hour and didn't even mention Reptilicus. <laughs> oh, you're totally right. But that's where my film, my, my, my lack of film education comes in. It's, it, that will be the next one on the list. On next time I play Quentin Tarantino's party game, I will have to mention that one because I think I was I'm about to say that should have been the one you named. <laughs> Joe is obsessed with Reptilicus. Uh, if you do watch it, you should also track down the novelization, which um, which is dirty I'm, as hell. I'm told it has lots of naughty bits in it. That are <laughs> it's in the so film. dirty. We just um, added two 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 titles to, to the list for me and my son. Thank you. I, I wouldn't uh, run right out and see Reptilicus if I were you. You're fine. You're fine with that. Uh, but Tobias, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Great. Best of luck with the film. It's terrific. I think people will enjoy it and um, look forward to what you come up with next. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate this. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. The Movies That Made Me is the official podcast of Trailers From Hell, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. We are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for The Movies That Made Me.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.